today is the penultimate, the second to last sermon in the series. We're studying verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy, a letter from the Apostle Paul to, to a younger pastor that he trained and commissioned to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus back in the first century A.D. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Today's sermon is entitled, American Idols. We talked about idols today. First of all, achieving my goals. Remember when you were in high school and you started to think seriously about what you wanted to do with your life? I was actually out of high school before I started thinking seriously about what I wanted to do with my life. But a lot of people think about it in high school and like actually have a focus and, and some goals in mind. But when you did that in high school, at some point you'd have a meeting, or, or typically more than one meeting, with a school counselor. And they'd ask you something like, what do you want to do with your life? You know, where do you see yourself? What do you want to prepare for and, and what kind of work and, and life do you want? So, if you're from around here, maybe you answer, I want a farm and ranch cattle. I'd like to raise the crops of my cattle and have more left over to sell into the market. I'd like to have a, a breeding program so that I can raise cattle that will thrive in this climate and that I could offer my breeding services and sell some of my breeding cattle to others. The counselor will look at your grades and, and look at, at what they know about your abilities and, and they would say, okay, let's find the right school for you. Let's find the program where you can study agricultural science and agribusiness and you can, you can become the farmer and rancher that you want to be and you can achieve your goals. And though you didn't say it when, when you were saying these things to the school counselor, you were also thinking, I, I want to have that big house in the country, and I want to drive that big old brand new good-looking pickup truck, and I want to be able to vacation when I'm not working on sunny beaches and see Europe someday and go up and stay in my cabin in the mountains when I go skiing in the winter, right? And when you sit down with the financial planner, What's one of the first things they ask you? What are your financial goals? What are your financial goals? And they listen to you, and they take your goals, and then they make a plan. They put together a, a financial investment savings plan to help you achieve your goals. I was talking to somebody recently who had just gotten a membership at a fitness center, and uh, they had to sit down with a trainer when they started that membership. And the trainer asked them, what are your fitness goals? What are your, your fitness goals? And then they told them, and then the trainer designed a fitness routine to help them achieve their goals. So we're used to that kind of thing. We have goals, we have desires, we have wants, and, and we have people who will ask us what those are and then try to help us achieve our goals. So we're used to that kind of thing. But here's the problem. It's easy for us to come to God with that same kind of mindset. Here's what I mean. I'm a typical guy growing up in America. There are certain things I want. I want a good job. 
I want a nice vehicle to drive. I want a big house. I want a great wife and family. Those are my goals. And then I meet some Christians. And there's something about them that I'm drawn to. I start going to church. I start to learn more about Jesus in the Bible. And I start to think, maybe I've found a way to getting what I want in life. Right? Still all about my goals. I mean, I have these dreams of living a certain kind of life. And I think what I heard the pastor say, the preacher, is that God is my ticket to getting what I want. So, I start getting involved in church. Maybe I volunteer. Maybe I give. I, I talk about how great God is. But in the back of my mind, and in the depth of my heart, the thing that's driving me is that I think this is the best way for me to get the things I've always wanted. But God doesn't work that way. God doesn't play that game. He doesn't exist to help you achieve your goals. In fact, God probably wants to give you a whole new set of goals that you never dreamed about before. He might want to show you that most of your goals were idols that you put in place of Him. Hmm. With that in mind, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1-10. through 10. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. The word of the Lord, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. So, idols. When you hear the word idol, do you think of it as a little statue that you put on a shelf and bow down to? How about this instead? Think of it as anything you put in the place of God. One definition of idolatry is Idolatry is when we worship something that's meant to be used and use something that's meant to be worshipped. I like that. When I was young in the faith, I was in the Air Force and technical training and electronic communications and electronic maintenance and repair. I was attending college studying towards a degree in electrical engineering. And I had a plan. 
with my training, with my military experience and security clearance and a university engineering degree, I was going to have a lucrative career and all the things that money could buy from that. But God had a different plan. I had to realize that most of my goals were idols that I had put in place of God. My idols had to be removed and replaced with God himself. God had another plan for me. God had other goals for me. And I had to let God himself replace the things that, that of my goals that had become idols. It's a lifelong process. So every day, we have an opportunity to choose God and to place God and God alone above everyone and everything else in our lives. Now, we're almost done studying the book of 1 Timothy. In today's passage, Paul is talking to Timothy, and Scripture is speaking to us about two of the most common idols that people worship. And I've called today's sermon American Idols because the passage talks about typical things that we Americans idolize, that we go after. But it really applies to any culture, and it applies to any culture at any time because it's about the human heart, and God knows the human heart. So the first idol is the idol of freedom. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke of slavery. Let's just stop right there for a second. In the first century Roman Empire, it's estimated that between one-third and one-half of the population were slaves at the time this letter was written. So this was a huge part of the population. Now, Slavery back then was very different than what we tend to think of as slavery, the kind you're probably thinking of like we had in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. Roman slavery was hardly ever based on race. So it wasn't one race suppressing another. There's lots of other differences. In, in slavery back then, slaves could own property, and, and they could make investments and have side ventures and collect money to buy their freedom. But you know what? That slavery is still wrong. It is always evil to own another person. But that was the reality back then, and that was a big part of the culture. And so the church in Ephesus, where Timothy pastored, when Paul writes him this letter, probably had a large proportion of slaves in the congregation, just like because the people that came to Christ came out of the surrounding culture, which was full of slaves. So, they heard the gospel, put their faith in Christ, and they were coming to church. Sometimes they were sitting next to other slaves, and sometimes they were sitting next to slave owners. And they were hearing this message of radical equality, right? From Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew, Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's some radical equality for somebody who's owned by another person, right? So these slaves are hearing this and, and thinking, you know what? I've always resented being a slave and obeying my master. Now, 
I have spiritual justification to run away or to revolt or to at least treat my master with disrespect. Can you see how that might go there? Can, can you maybe picture yourself having the same kind of thoughts if you were a slave back then? So freedom is what I've always wanted. That's my goal. Now i found the gospel. I might have found my ticket to getting what I've always wanted. So now let's read all of verse 1 and see what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. And then maybe the Christian slave said, oh man, that's not the answer I was looking for. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul tells Christians, Christian slaves to gain their freedom in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul condemns slave traders in this book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 10. Paul, in a, in a letter to a man named Philemon that's in the Bible, encourages Philemon, a slave owner, to free his slave, who is also a Christian believer in Philemon verse 16. So, the New Testament is definitely in favor of freedom. But what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is don't make freedom an idol. Don't make freedom your ultimate goal. There's something more important than your freedom. Ah, that's a bold statement. You know what it is? It says here in verse 1 that the name of God and the good news that Jesus saves will be well thought of by others. So, yes, get your freedom if you can, but in the meantime, behave in a way that honors the name of God and proclaims accurately the good news that Jesus saves. So that is well thought of in the culture around you, not that, that you become a detraction to the good news. That's even more important than your freedom. Wow. Those are radical words. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you should teach and insist on. It doesn't matter if your master is a believer or an unbeliever. If you are a Christian, God's will is for you to work hard, for you to behave with integrity, and for you to show honor to your master. Now, let's take that out of the first century when this was written, and let's bring it into our time, now in the 21st century. Freedom remains one of the most common idols human beings have. Deep in our hearts, there's something that says, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I don't want to take orders from anybody, and I don't want to be obligated to anyone. If you have raised kids or you are raising kids, you know 
that that's part of teaching your children to be part of the family, to be part of society, to be part of the congregation. And it doesn't stop with childhood. No matter how old you are, there's something in you that doesn't want to be controlled or told what to do. You don't want to be controlled by your parents, by your boss, by your spouse, or by anybody else. And then you become a Christian. And you think, ah, maybe this is the ticket to getting what I've always wanted. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm going to destroy the idol of freedom in your life. I'm going to show you the real freedom, eternal freedom, comes from being a servant. Paul echoes this back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So, wherever you are, you serve. At work, in your marriage, with your children. Every Sunday we mention opportunities to serve here in the church. So, you can serve in church. You don't have to just come here and consume on Sunday mornings. You can give back in the offering plate and with your service. I'm a hospice chaplain, and so I visit you know people that are on hospice in the end stages of their life. And one of the hospice patients I am a chaplain to. Anybody else hear that? Oh. I was downstairs. I was hearing nothing. Okay. One of the hospice patients I'm chaplain to has two sons. Now, they're farmers, right? I don't know if you knew this, but farmers have stuff to do in the morning. Like, every morning, right? But, but uh, her husband preceded her in death, and she's on hospice now, and she has family that lives close. Um, sons, daughters... Sons-in-laws, daughters-in-laws, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So, a lot of family close. And two of her sons take turns coming to her house every morning, seven days a week. And they make breakfast for her. One of them make breakfast for her and sit down and share, share that time with her while they eat breakfast together. So, these are busy men. They got stuff to do. But one or the other of them, every morning, is at mom's house making the breakfast and serving it to her and spending uh, an unhurried mealtime with her mom. And, and uh, gosh, that just blesses my heart. Um, wow. What a, what a cool picture of how it could be. Um, how it should be. But, the, but many of us, where we're at is, oh, if I could just be free from this thing in my life, right? If I, if I was just free of that, oh, I would be so much happier than I am. I can't be happy because this is in my life, but if I could just be free of that, I would be so happy. Jesus says, you're most joyful and you're most free when you serve. So that's the first idol in this passage. And then there's this kind of interlude, this intermission in the middle of the passage where Paul, again, not for the first and not for the second time, discusses false teachers. 
And he talks to Timothy about how to spot a false teacher. Beginning at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for a minute. The first way to spot a false teacher is their teaching does not center on Jesus. Their teaching doesn't put Jesus Christ at the center. If you hear any supposedly Christian teaching, and it doesn't center on the teaching and the person of Jesus Christ, you should be very suspicious of that teaching and of that teacher. That's a healthy, protective response that will keep you solid in the Christian faith. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Bible says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that Jews demanded miraculous signs and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So continuing on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, and to godly teaching. Here's the second way to spot a false teacher. If their teaching does not lead to godly living, then they're a false teacher. This is really a basic thing. You can tell a lot about a person's teaching by the way it affects people's everyday lives, right? Does this teaching make people more godly? Because of this teaching, are people showing more love? Because living in love is always the main thing. Does that person's teaching bring more peace and more patience? and more kindness, and more goodness, and more faithfulness, and more gentleness, and more self-control, because that's the fruit of the Spirit. Does this teaching produce the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of those who are being taught? Or does it produce something else? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. They are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So, is this person, this teacher, conceited and self-promoting? Do they always make themselves look good? Are they always the star of their own stories? They always take credit for anything good. So apparently, one time when we lived in, in the Alaska, we're in the Alaska bus, Lope County 2000, and, and there were a couple families that followed somebody that was on TV, and, and uh, they, they were two families of means, and they spent the money to get that person to come to Cordova, Alaska to preach. And this woman stood in front of the group that gathered to hear her and took credit for the fishing season being a good one that year because the Lord had told her to pray for it and she had prayed, the Lord had honored her prayer and so the commercial fishing season was a good, productive, um, um, profitable one because of her because nobody in Alaska ever knew how to fish before she came, right? 
so, yeah, you tell them, Junior. Um, they're always a star in their own stories. They take the credit for anything good that happens. So apparently, because Paul comes back to this, not for the first and not for the second time, this warning about false teachers, and he's um, specific about it. And, and, and he spends the moment talking about it several times in this letter. So apparently there were teachers in Ephesus that were saying that you can use God to get everything you want, right? Instead of realizing that God wants to knock down the idols in your life, these people were teaching that, first of all, you could have absolute freedom, and second of all, that the idol of wealth was a good thing, that you follow Jesus for financial gain. There is research out of UCLA that has been tracking college freshmen through their four years of getting their bachelor's degree for over 50 years now. So they, they, ask, they ask these questions to college freshmen, and then they talk to them each year through their schooling, and then they talk to them when they're graduating college. So this is these are trends that have been revealed by this research that are over 50 years long. Today, today's college freshmen say that getting rich is highly important or essential at the highest rate in the history, 50-plus year history of research. 97.8% of the recent college freshmen said that it is highly important or essential to get rich in life. At the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5 here, Paul warns Timothy about false teachers who teach that godliness is a means to financial gain. So Paul talking to Timothy about that 2,000 years ago. And here we are, right smack dab in the middle of it today. So not much has changed there, has it? You can hear that same heresy about health and wealth. And, and if you're right with God, He's going to bless you with all kinds of financial abundance every time. Um, you can listen to teachers who focus on material wealth. Same heresy today that Paul was warning Timothy about in the first century. Teachers who say God wants you to prosper and He wants you to be wealthy. Guess what? You're listening to lies if you believe that. You're listening to false teaching. Just like there's something even more important than freedom, there's something more important than wealth. First Timothy chapter six, verses six through eight. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So these are three short verses there, and twice in those three short verses, contentment is mentioned. You know what most of us think, and, and there's research to back this up, most of us think that if we just made a little more money, Man, I'd start tithing if I could make like a little more than I make now. 
I can't tithe now. Somebody makes more than me has got to tithe. The church has got to, got to be funded off of, off of their income because I'm not going to tithe. But if I just made a little more, man, I could tithe, right? If I just made a, a little more money, then I could pay all the bills and I could buy the things that I want. And then if I just made a little more money, then I'd be content. But you know what the research consistently shows? Once your basic needs are met, and I mean basic needs, like food, clothing, and a safe place to lay your head at night. Once that's met, more money does not produce more happiness. That's, and, and that's not somebody like me preaching that because it's what the Bible says. That's scientific research, completely independent of Christian faith. But it consistently says that more money does not produce more happiness. So, modern research confirms the truth of Holy Scripture yet again. How different would your life be? How different would you be if you let God give you contentment? For most of us, it'd be a radical change. Truth is, it's there for the asking. It's there for the asking. It's what God wants to give you. Is that contentment? First Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Part of this passage is one of the most misquoted scriptures, maybe in the entire Bible. Listen, money is neutral. Money is inanimate. Money doesn't have a desire. Money doesn't uh, go have a goal of tempting you or dragging you away from faith. Money is neutral. What it says here in verse 10, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. It's in the heart, not in the money. The desire to be rich, the craving for wealth. In other words, when you make an idol out of money, your soul shrivels. Bad things happen. And you don't have to be rich to love money. Some of the most godly, faithful with money and wealth people I know are wealthy. And, and I know when I say that, that somebody in their mind is saying, well, they can afford to be that way because they're wealthy. If I just had a little more, I'd be content like they are. Stop. I know some people who are wealthy, and, and they are so faithful with their money and with their wealth and with their time and with their energy. And I know middle class and poor people who hardly think of anything but money and wealth. They're always thinking, man, It's not the size of your bank account. It's the condition of your heart. You know what research shows? 
that not only does does contentment not increase after basic needs are met, for many people, life gets harder and more complicated, and they're less content when they get a bunch of money. Everybody thinks money's going to solve everything. Money can solve anything. Um, go read the book of Ecclesiastes. There's some really good stuff in there about about the labor, the worker bee sleeps good at night, and the elder stays up all night worrying about it because he's got all this responsibility for all this stuff. So, you don't need a bunch of money to be content. And more money isn't going to add to your contentment. You've got to figure that out exactly where you're at now. And then, you can be content in anything. So, what would life look like when Jesus Christ is at the center Jesus takes your craving for freedom and he turns it into the joy of serving. Jesus takes your craving for wealth and he turns it into contentment. And only Jesus can do that because only Jesus can change your heart. Jesus really does change your heart. He makes us into people that we could never be in our own strength. He's God. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. God, give us contentment. May we lay down our 